calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One. The Voyage South. Chapter Two. In which Roaring Jack discovers a use for Astrea's talent. That same spring, there were other villagers with decisions to make. The skippers of the village boats had to choose from among a dozen young men who would permanently join their crews. All had gone through their boyhoods, learning to row and sail small craft in the fjords, fishing for and cutting bait, setting lobster pots, cleaning and drying the catch, as well as all the tasks of sailing and maintaining the seagoing boats. They'd also been beyond the headlands for day trips, when the winds were set fair. But now that their apprenticeship was over, they would join a boat and sail in all weathers, sharing the fate and fortune of their crewmates. The skippers took this task very seriously. They needed to balance their crews with respect to size, strength, skill, and experience. They also had to take into consideration the intertwined families and the relationships among them. This was a political as well as a practical choice, and one that weighed on their minds as the day of choosing came closer. Foremost of these was Roaring Jack, the skipper of the boat that had rescued Astrea's father. He was a broad-shouldered, red-bearded man, and a village byword for luck and shouting. Like many big-voiced men, he could never be persuaded that he was noisy. He thought of himself as a soft-spoken, quiet-loving soul, as he often told his family, in a voice that could be heard across the village. People who would have feared violence from any other skipper, who raised his voice so much and so often, merely laughed and said, "'There's Jack again, loud as ever.' After a particularly noisy morning that came at the end of an ear-splitting winter, Roaring Jack climbed the southern headland, looking for peace and quiet, with only his big black dog, Skip, for company. Below in the village, the other skippers were supervising preparations for the beginning of the new season's fishing, a task he had delegated. In a few hours they would meet to choose the young men who would join their crews. Reaching a little meadow at the cliff-top, where the sea-winds blew everything except grass and a few sturdy crocuses out of the ground, Roaring Jack took off his jacket and sat on it, in the warm spring sunshine, where he was protected from the wind as it bowled over the cliff-top in an invisible wave. He sighed, lay back, pillowed his head on a tuffet, and closed his eyes. 
The grass was soft and springy. The creaking cry of the gulls overhead reminded him of the wind in his boat's rigging. The sea swished and grumbled at the foot of the cliff. First he mused about how he would complete the crew he would soon be naming. Then he yawned, and, lulled by the sounds around him, he slept. Skip stood, nose to the wind, assessing the mix of sea and shore smells. Then he sat beside his master for a little while, until a scent, or perhaps the memory of one, drew him to his feet and on down the zigzag path to where small brown furry creatures made their homes amongst scrubby pines and long grasses. On his way down he met Estrella going up, and they greeted each other with enthusiasm. Roaring Jack's big, black, curly-haired dog had been Estrella's companion since they had romped together as puppy and child. Their relationship was equal. Neither owned the other. Both enjoyed each other's company. So when Estrella's face had been slapped with a long, wet tongue, and Skip's ears ruffled and chin scratched, they both went on their separate ways. Roaring Jack was asleep when Estrella arrived at the cliff-top. He had brought with him some sheets of birch-bark stripped from logs destined for his mother's fire, and a handful of twigs that he had carefully burnt to charcoal around her pots and kettles. It had been his intention to draw the gulls as they flew and hovered in the updraft of wind at the cliff's edge. He had seen a sketch of a pair of gulls in his father's little book, and it seemed reasonable to attempt the same task on the chance that it might give some insight into the indecipherable rest of the page. Besides, the climb away from the village was Estrella's way of forgetting that tomorrow was the day when the skippers would announce their choices. Those chosen became men, those left behind stayed boys. Estrella knew he was neither popular among his peers nor well-connected in the intricate web of families. Like some of the youths who had been with him on the beach, Estrella already had a short beard, but where the other's cheeks and chins sported blonde or reddish hair, Estrella's black beard made him seem closer in age to the bearded men of the village. If he were left on shore with the boys, he would be a painfully obvious failure. Estrella sketched, so he would not despair. Estrella had made pictures when he could barely walk. Instead of spanking him for his first messy attempts, executed in milk on the table, porridge on the floor, and mud on the walls, Alana had encouraged him by offering different materials. His skills had grown with him. Perhaps because she enjoyed his pictures, perhaps because they both knew that the villagers would not, Estrella's drawing had remained a secret between them until the fight with Jan started the rumour that Estrella had strange and worrying talents. The villagers were not enthusiastic about impractical pursuits, save for singing or playing the fiddle or flute, which had established places in their lives. Music was an entertainment into which everyone could join, if only by clapping hands and stamping feet. Scratching at birch bark with burned sticks was a solitary act, and thus suspect. Few of the villagers saw the world as did Estrella. Most would have thought it more than half crazed to climb onto the cliff tops to draw the image of a gull. For them, gulls were gulls. They picked up scraps when the catch was cleaned, soared and wove overhead before the weather changed to the worse, 
and served as guides to where schools of fish fed close to the surface. They had value only for those reasons, and were not a subject for further speculation. Astraea saw gulls differently. For him, they spoke of freedom from the daily world of chores, duties, and routine. Their flight drew him out of himself. He loved to watch them hang on the wind, soar around the cliffs, or settle deftly on a stone. He had tried in the past to catch the sense of adventure they gave him, but the image had so far eluded him. Astraea forgot seagulls when he noticed Roaring Jack. Seeing an unconscious model, Astraea immediately began to draw the bearded, bushy-browed skipper, his mouth partly open and his face relaxed in sleep. Working quickly, Astraea captured the determined set of Roaring Jack's jaw beneath a beard that erupted from his face, covering everything below his tanned nose and cheeks. Fine lines etched the corners of his eyes, a deep, frowning notch above his nose splayed out into long valleys across his brow, but behind the exuberant beard and moustache was a mouth that could laugh as well as shout. Astraea crouched in the grasses out of the wind, his charcoal stick wriggling across the birch bark as he sketched with absolute concentration. For a while Astraea drew while Roaring Jack slept. Then, when Astraea was drawing wrinkles around the skipper's eyes, caused by squinting against harsh light, and tracing the lines etched by wind and weather, he glanced up from his drawing and stared into a single blue and wide-awake eye. An eyebrow like a frayed paintbrush wagged up, and the second steely blue eye opened, as Roaring Jack frowned back into Astraea's green-eyed stare. Astraea was aghast at the situation into which he had placed himself. He knew full well that no skipper ever attained or kept command by being inattentive, and he guessed that, even in sleep, Roaring Jack must have heard a sound that had not been present when he had settled into the comfortable grasses. Then he had probably listened with his eyes shut at first, considering what to do, when he decided to move with all the skill and speed necessary to trim a sail or tend the tiller. At the same moment Roaring Jack sat up, and Astraea stood, shuffling his sheets of bark to conceal what he had been doing. "'Let me see the marks you've made, boy,' said Roaring Jack, in for what for him was almost a whisper. "'After all, if they're about me, I deserve to see them.' Astraea neither jumped nor shrank away, as people tended to do when assaulted by Roaring Jack's voice at close range. Astraea held out the sketch he had made. Roaring Jack took the bark in one big hand and examined it, the other hand absently stroking his red beard. "'So, that's me, is it?' "'I think so,' answered Estrella. The skipper's eyebrows almost met in a single bushy frown as he stood holding the birch bark. Now his left eye squinted and his right eyebrow rose. His free hand tugged at his beard as if to tear it out for inspection." "'Would me wife see me in these markings?' Astraea nodded. "'You're sure of yourself, my lad,' said Roaring Jack grimly. Scowling even more ferociously, he added, "'I like that.' There did not seem to be anything he could say in reply, so Astraea stood silent. Suddenly the big man's mouth twisted below his luxuriant beard and moustache, 
and his blue eyes opened wide. Estrella watched the transformation, wondering whether the skipper was about to throw a fit. "'Can you draw things as well as faces?' Estrella nodded. "'Do it. Show me the north head,' ordered the skipper, waving a big arm at the cliffs and rocks on the other side of the gap between the headlands. Closely watched by Roaring Jack, Estrella knelt, took a fresh sheet of birch bark and a new twig of charcoal, and went to work without a word. In a few quick strokes he caught the outlines of the cliff, the rocky shore, the frieze of trees along the cliff-tops, and the occasional pine that reared its head above the others to be bent by onshore winds. Then he added the fallen crags at the foot of the cliffs, where waves broke into spray. Soon he was finished. His only thought was that he was spending a fine piece of birch bark on a subject that held no challenge for him. Roaring Jack started to mutter as the first strokes caught the broad outlines. By the time Estrella was putting in final touches, such as the clouds and the set of the sea's eddies around the rocks, the big man was stamping up and down, rumbling incomprehensibly to himself. Estrella held out the sketch for inspection. For a moment it seemed that Roaring Jack would crush the fragile bark in his enthusiasm, but his big, sandy-haired fingers closed gently. He held it carefully at arm's length, sucked in his cheeks, and snorted a couple of times, before he knelt to put the bark on the springy grass, so he could follow the details of the sketch with a stubby forefinger. The wrinkles around his eyes puckered as he stared into the distance, then smoothed as he examined the drawing. Suddenly he gripped Estrella uncomfortably close to his neck. The skipper's fingers dug in, yanking him painfully to his feet. Estrella felt a momentary stab of fear, but did not pull away. Roaring Jack started to pace again, apparently forgetting that he still held on to Estrella. Perforce, Estrella walked with him, trying to match his strides. Back and forth on the tiny cliff-top meadow, the powerful red-bearded man and the slim black-haired youth marched and countermarched, while Roaring Jack rumbled to himself. After a grumble of indistinguishable words, the skipper spoke at full volume. Now, if only the boy could read and, and cipher, as well as make his markings. Seagulls swirled overhead, tilting their heads to locate the sound. But I can, began Estrella. If he could read and cipher, and a whole lot better than them young louts who can barely score all their names, then he's the one who can mark down me landfalls, southards, so I can find me way back, and... He stopped swung Estrella around to face him and glared into his face. "'What did you say, lad?' "'I can read and cipher. My mother got me started, and Scarm taught me from his books.' The sheets of birch bark fell from Estrella's hand. He had broken a promise to Scarm not to reveal the old sailor's private stock of books. "'You'd not be lying,' Roaring Jack began. "'No. Alanna's boy would tell the truth.' "'Where did she find the art to teach you?' "'My father taught her,' said Estrella. "'We have my father's writings,' he added, "'hoping his lapse about Scar-Arm Ian had not been noticed.' "'Roaring Jack nodded. "'I mind now how the stranger had a passion for anything we writing on it.' "'The skipper's free hand closed on Estrella's other shoulder. 
The skipper's mane of red hair shook in the wind, and the words thundered out of him. "'You come with me, lad, and we'll find a way south, and mark it down so we can find our way north again. The last easterly of winter is come and gone, so we can hope for a fair passage south with a nor'west wind on the quarter, and we'll look a sou'westerly to help us follow the fish back. We'll see if me old grandfer was raving in his dotage, or if the old squid jigger did see knives that don't rust, and sails what always find a wind.' He sailed south with his grandfather. He was nothing but a boy then, and he never went again, nor said much about it neither. Not a soul's taken the chance since. But I'll show em. They'll never question me seamanship ever again. The big skipper searched Estrella's face for signs of fear, but the boy's grey-green eyes were lit with delight. This was his chance to find out where books came from why no one would speak of anything beyond or before the village, and, most of all, what his father had meant by the enigmatic notebook. Amazingly, the very thing that marked him as different from the other young men was now an advantage, and a route to the understanding he craved. Astrea had hoped to go to the fishing-grounds, because that was what everyone but Alana expected him to do. But he also wanted more— the things that made him different—his father, his mother's teaching, his new-found heritage—all told him that he should become more than a fisherman. Amid all these swirling thoughts, he did not notice that Roaring Jack seemed to believe that people were questioning his seamanship. Astrea and Roaring Jack stared at each other, enthusiasm flowing between them, and then suddenly Roaring Jack let go in embarrassment. Skippers did not allow themselves to sparkle with the eagerness of young blood, still less show it to their crew. Roaring Jack's eyes narrowed as he examined Astrea for any sign of ridicule or amusement. Finding none, he moderated his voice to a conspiratorial bellow. "'Now, me lad, not a word of this, except your mother. She's got the right to know, so I'll be over to talk with her tonight.' The wind picked up a curl of birch bark and tossed it against the skipper's leg. "'Oh, drop me bare arse in a barrel of barnacles! They're getting away!' They both bent to retrieve it, and then, as more sheets were plucked by a shift in the breeze, they snatched low and high until they'd recovered almost all of them. Roaring Jack's thunderclap oath turned into a grateful sigh when he realized that he still had Astrea's two most recent sketches. The drawings clasped in one hand— Roaring Jack led the way down the path to the village, his voice somewhat muffled by the trees. So, two new youngsters, and e'en for strength, and skirm for brains, to make five in all. Astrea almost ran into the big man's back as Roaring Jack stopped dead on the steep path. Skirm'll go for it, sure to. I'll look out the big bucket if he don't. Then the skipper was on the move again, this time singing as he walked. Oh, she was round in the counter, and bluff in the bow, so I hoisted my yard and I took her in tow. A stone clattered under Astrea's foot. Roaring Jack glanced behind him, chuckled, and turned his song first into a deep, rumbling hum, and then a whistle. The seagulls, long forgotten, 
Astrea followed him down to the village. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.